This loaded and rolling episode was made possible by our sponsor, Emerge. Focused on empowering and growing meaningful supply chain relationships, Emerge is proud to sponsor the loaded and rolling community. Through its freight procurement platform, Emerge offers solutions that enhance the spot and contract procurement process, enabling shippers to make the most strategic decisions possible. Learn more at www.emergemarket.com. The military supply chain, like the domestic supply chain, it's gotten more complex as technology has revolutionized military affairs. And this is putting greater pressure on just keeping things moving. So when we talk about supply chains, they always play a critical role in both the economy and the battlefield. And a failure to account for it can often lead to disastrous results. I'm your host, Thomas Watson. This is Loaded and Rolling, and we're going to do a deep dive into this supply chain. And we're going to have, uh, joining us today, is going to be uh, Colonel Randy Nelson. He is a retired U.S. Army colonel. He's had over 20 years of supply chain and sustainment experience with both conventional and special operations assignments. He currently works with the defense industry that helps customers with military, commercial, and even space solutions. Uh, welcome, Randy. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hey, thanks, Thomas. It's uh, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks for the invite, and I, I hope I can help you out. I'm super excited. And just kind of, we're talking about 20 years of experience. That's a huge, huge uh, you know, Brett, are, what are some of the highlights that you've gotten to do and work with just so kind of the audience gets an idea of uh, some of your background? Yeah, so so 27, right? I think, uh, and I had four in the National Guard you know, going through college. And so uh, 31 years total in uniform, which was fabulous, uh, by the way. Uh, the, the military was great uh, to me and my family. So just a, a fabulous career. Uh, we, we retired in uh, December of 2017. And then began work in the uh, in the defense industry. So, but you know, just a great time. We we did assignments uh, across the states. Uh, our first assignment was at Fort Carson, Colorado, and uh, with the Fourth Infantry Division. And and uh, my wife and I kind of looked at each other and said, "Well, this is the Army. We're skiing, you know, but uh, you know, Loveland and Breckenridge, <laughs> golfing, and and then you know, reality struck. It's uh, it's time away from home and a lot of a lot of up tempo, but uh, but." So we went over to Germany for four years, uh, got a chance to teach at St. John's University, uh, you know, kind of like we we're talking about, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Kelly, uh, yeah, teaching military science. So I got to do that for a while. And then uh, that was the first half of my career. And then, you know, after 9-11, everything changed. And uh, so we uh, we headed down to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, you know, not far. I think you guys are down Chattanooga, I believe. But uh, uh, spent seven years at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, with uh, with a unit that supported the 101st, and then a couple of organizations, you know, on Fort Campbell, and uh, a lot of deployed time after that. So, so 27 years on the active, you know, duty, and then about two and a half ish, you know, years uh, in combat zones in uh, mainly Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, uh, but you know, I saw a lot. Was in logistics from from day one uh, to the last day, uh, you know, and and in the military you know, logistics is different, you know, as you go through your career. And so I started out an ammo guy as a young lieutenant and then, uh, you know, moved into, did some maintenance stuff and then some transportation stuff later in my career. Uh, A lot of time in the second half of my career with special operations, uh, which uh, exposed me to a lot of other authorities and dynamic people. And so, uh, yeah, very, very diverse you know, and if I had five of my buddies right here, we, we'd give you five different stories, right? Because everybody has their 
the organizations that they were with, they supported and, and their, their experiences and scar tissue, if you, if you will. But uh, so I think uh, you were talking about, you know, changes across, I think, the, the breadth of my career. You know, I think about, uh, you know, early on, um, we didn't have enterprise systems, right? We didn't have ERPs and, and all these things, the, the connectivity that we do now. And so a lot of our work, I remember being out in, in the field, uh, in the field, you call it out in the woods, right? Uh, in training in the States uh, with the 4th uh, Infantry Division. And we were the Division Ammunition Office and we're calling on the phone and getting these uh, status reports and whatnot. And it was all phone conversations and field fax machines, 24 hour, you know, log uh, statistic reports you know, you'd feed and, and it was a rhythm, um, but it was very, very painful. And, uh, and so I was very happy to see, I think it was in 2015, the first rollout of, of uh, an ERP system called the Global Combat Support System. You know, what, awesome, right? It, uh, it's, it's really game changing for the military and, and it took a long time to get to us, you know, but it's rolled up, um, you know, systems that were relatively stovepiped and brought them all together, right? So you see end to end. And so it takes the warehousing um, system, it takes the property management system, and it takes the maintenance system, and then wraps that with the finance, you know, system. So no longer do you have the guy in the motor pool, you know, down there ordering all kinds of, you know, $90,000 worth of parts, you know, for your vehicles, and they didn't validate that they had the funding for it. And so it's gotta go first, get tied up with funding, and then it goes uh, as a system. Provides you status updates, uh, tracking, uh, you know, you can do forecasting. And so that really, I think, is, is kind of the headliner, you know, for me as a logistics guy is to be able to see something that goes that far uh, and is really, really working for the team. And, uh, you know, so if you think about lack of visibility, right, if you have a lack of visibility, and this happened in, in, let's just say, Afghanistan, right? So yeah. long war, many years. And so you would be there for six months or nine months or whatever your tour was. And then you get replaced by someone from, I don't know, 10th Mountain Division, you know, and in, uh, in New York would come over. And, and uh, well, you ordered a bunch of stuff. You, you weren't getting good status, you know, and so you would order it again, you know, and, and say, hey, it must not be coming. Let's, let's order it again. And so then one of those two orders may come in, but then the other one, you've left, you've gone back home, you're in the States, and uh, now you've got 10th Mountain Division receiving all these parts, you know, because you fall in on the same code, right? And so it's, it's seamless, but you have that residual effect of logistics flowing in uh, because it's a process. And, and you, you couldn't get the perfect status to say, hey, it's going to be there in X number of days. But, uh, you know, it's so that lack of visibility causes excess to happen. It causes uh, multiple ordering and it causes, now you've got an excess and a retrograde problem, right? So now you've got more stuff than you need. Now it takes manpower for people to count it, uh, for people to uh, package it up and ship it back, or, you know, just stack it over behind uh, some, uh, some Connex bands, you know? And so, um, but so I can't say enough about G army. That's the first one. Right. And I think, um, uh, the second would be um, you know, prognostics, uh, predictive maintenance, and so you know, with with the with the sensors on the cars, like you know, 
my wife drives a Subaru and it drives me insane because there's like five cameras, 80 sensors. It beeps at me everything I do. Right. And so but uh, but what it's telling me is uh, it's no longer do you pull into the to the uh, the quick lube after 2000 miles. It, it's a, it's got health monitoring. And so it's going to tell you we have 49 percent you know oil life or whatever that is. And that's a fundamental example. Think about those sensors on many, many parts of the engine. And, and many parts of the of the uh, of the complex system, and so now you have effective health monitoring, and now you uh, you know um, you can make better informed decisions. And so what that means is everything has got a ripple effect, right? So if you have health monitoring, then you know you're not going to have to change oil for the most part until this uh, a, a later date, because everything else we we deployed with were. Uh, prescribed load lists, right? So, hey, a Humvee goes and a Humvee's got to have the oil changed at this interval, monthly, quarterly, annual services, biannual, all these things. You have to take that pile of parts to support that vehicle, you know, wherever you go globally. Well, now, I mean, we're, this is demand reduction, right? Uh, right in front of us. And so um, I think if, if it, it takes a while for the maintainers in the motor pool, you know, to be able to gather all this data, make informed decisions, but they're they're making that happen. And so I think, uh, you know, predictive maintenance um, uh, and health monitoring of our fleet, you know, uh, then that goes across aviation, ground, you know, uh, systems that have that on there, power generation, all that business. And so uh, I think that's good. That's, um, a, that's a cutting edge. I, was, I talked to a guy in a previous interview does predictive analytics for commercial fleets. And he said that they got so good at it now that they figure it out. You have to have the actual experts to do it, but you can predict and tell you, like you said, before it breaks. So nowadays, the systems you said in 2015, the Army is now able to say, hey, instead of just sitting around all these extra parts, my Humvees, my combat vehicles, I can actually kind of predict, well, it's probably this item may break if you keep doing this or statistically we need to get this looked at. Yeah. And um, it's very important in the aviation industry, right? Because, hey, now they know, you know, well, hey, this this part, you know, was was certified for X number of hours of flight. But we're seeing now we're seeing that it can last until this. And so they're they're being able to extend the life of some of those parts, saving, you know, a lot of money and time. And so I think uh, man, I'm all for that. I think it's fabulous to get the the health uh, monitoring out there because that that's. That's uh, that's an aid to the logistician, right? The supply chain, you know, uh, breathes a, a collective sigh of relief because demand's going to go down if if it's applied properly. So, um, now another so the, quick question um, on that too, because I like yeah. how you talked about how visibility, and I hear that all the time from people because a fragmented domestic supply chain has similar issues with the military supply chain. Ironically, customers don't know how much they ordered. So then they order too much and then they double send it to themselves. And then the next warehouse is angry because they received too much product. Um, was that one of the big things you saw? I read a Rand article that talked about the original first Gulf War OIF was, you know, we're going to have these big pools of items, the old like, you know, uh, um, stockpiles. And then by the time we did Iraqi Freedom and we went in back in 2003, it went to a more um, you know, just in time distribution based model where we're going to try to work on not just having tons of stuff floating around. Did you see any kind of big changes like that with before they implemented that kind of t- that system in 2015? Or is it still you're picking up the phone? You're like, hey, are you empty? Nope. Don't send it yet. <laughs> I tell you, you know, it, we 
I think we, the collective military body, we're, we're right with you, right on the angst of, of, you know, visibility and, oh my gosh, it's the wrong stuff at the right time or the wrong time or whatever. And so, uh, that's always a challenge. And, uh, and I tell you, the United States, we have a, we have the most effective supply chain, uh, deployment capability, um, out, out of anyone, you know, uh, they wrote a book about it called Iron Mountain, or moving, moving mountains, right. It was, uh, the logistics story of, of, uh, of um, Desert Storm, and, and there was just so much stuff, so much stuff flooded in there that they, they couldn't find it among, amongst all the 20 and 40 foot containers and, and getting it to the right place. It was very, very complex. But uh, the thing about it is, is, you know, the, the, the enemy gets a vote, uh, terrain gets a vote, you know, so how fast can we move across the desert? Well, you really don't know right until you get there. And how, you know, how much fuel you're going to burn, you know, and, and how far back is your supply chain? And so it's very, very dynamic. But uh, but yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, it was a big, uh, uh, yeah, pretty linear fight, you know, moving up into, into Kuwait and uh, and uh, trailing those supplies off. And uh, that was good. In Afghanistan, it was more of a non-contiguous battlefield, right? So you had little, you know, fobs, forward operating bases separated from each other that you didn't have connectivity. So outside the wire, you're outside the wire, right? Until you get to the next forward operating base. And so that, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, but, uh, but a little bit different, but that was more just in time. Uh, we, uh, we tried, and that really depends on, um, you know, who controls the supply lines, right? Is uh, like in Afghanistan, the rear area, you know, definitely wasn't in Afghanistan, right? It was, uh, you're, you're on your, like I spent many, many, many months on Bagram, airfield just north of Kabul and then it was like 11, I don't know, just seven, seven mile, I think, perimeter at, yeah. at one point around a big airfield. And, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, but outside that, you know, you're, you're leaving the wire and you have to have security and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, it's a little bit different, you know, concepts, but, um, but yeah, so I think, uh, we did go from, uh, you know, just in time is fun to say, but just in time is hard to do, right? And so um, we, we use a lot of regional offsets, you know, like Kuwait, Qatar, and other places like that in Europe to stage. So you wouldn't have to ship everything from the States. You could get it more, you know, regionally aligned. And uh, so that that shortens your, your strategic and operational supply chain. Uh, but then when you get into the Ford operating bases, you know, then you've, then you've got to do that last, uh, you know, number of tactical miles out. And that was, you know, either done with, uh, mainly early on contract, uh, they call them jingle trucks, It'd be Afghan drivers. And you, you, we had six companies and I go down to the contracting officer and here's your, here's your mission. Here's your location to go to this, which taken. And they would do that. And, uh, but when they're going to get there, I have no idea. Right. See, they, they, you know, so the guys on the other end are like, you know, Randy, when is this thing coming in? Yeah. So w- when are the supplies going to make it out there? And the only communication we had with the um, Afghan drivers was we had a satellite phone and we had each Afghan driver's um, cell phone number. Sometimes that answer, sometimes it wouldn't. And then we'd have someone, an interpreter that w- we could talk through, you know, with them. Well, what's going on? I mean, did you run to weather? Did you run to a roadblock or what? Uh, because if you're you're giving uh, the guys at the forward location a window, 
expect this truck, you know, transport between this time, this time, and they have a watch out for it and because of the obvious threat, you have to be careful. But, uh, but yeah, so that was, that was a challenge and, uh, and interact a little bit differently, but, but I think, you know, getting back to the changes that I've seen, I think contractors on the battlefield was a really big one, you know, for me. And, uh, early on, uh, I spent six months down to Tsar Hungary for the, uh, the Bosnia, um, conflict. And that was, uh, that was an offset. So we staged a lot of the guys up there and then outfitted their, their, uh, um, with ammo, food, water, all that kind of stuff. And then they would, they would head uh, south into the operational area. Uh, but there wasn't, there was some contractors around, but not too many. Uh, but fast forward to when I showed up in, uh, Afghanistan in 2003, uh, and then, uh, in, in Iraq, you know, anywhere from 2004 to, to, uh, you know, just like in back in 2016, at one point, I think in Afghanistan, there were more contractors on the ground than there were soldiers, you know, because of the long war, competing wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so the contractors on the battlefield would do um, uh, other services, right? Uh, so you wouldn't have to like, carry a weapon to be maintenance, uh, cleaning, um, in and around uh, shuttle bus driving on the Ford operating bases, um, you know, some, some light construction and, uh, maintaining fuel points and stuff like that. And it was awesome. And I tell you, I think, you know, probably some of your viewers, you know, are, are going like this right now saying, yes, I, I served the tour, you know, in Afghanistan and, uh, or I served the tour in Iraq and, um, uh, and they had a fabulous time. Right. And so, and they would sign on for a year. They'd come over, they, they, they'd drive a truck. And, um, a lot of times, uh, we would, drive the gun trucks in front of them. Um, and so we'd have a couple of gun trucks and then you'd have, you know, seven to 10, you know, fuel tankers or, or cargo vehicles. And we'd roll out the wire, you know, and then go to the, uh, whatever the next Ford operating base was to move the logistics. And then um, uh, they'd, they'd be right with us, right? And so if there was a threat, uh, if you took fire, everybody did, you know? And so uh, IEDs on the side of the road, uh, we're, we're a big threat. And so uh, it was my hats off to all those guys. And, and they call that the Logistics uh, Civil Augmentation Program. It's still active today. And so uh, but it was fabulous to see all the contractors out there with us because uh, it was a true team effort. And a lot of people felt great about you know serving. And, and I met folks from from all over the, the states. So it was nice to see them over there. But um, oh, yeah. I love the jingle trucks, too. I think that's crazy. I've seen them in Pakistan where they have little stuff on them. They're very, you know, very well painted and they have all these crazy things. Yeah. How uh, how reliable were the jingle trucks? It reminds me of when I was a freight broker. We randomly get a guy's cell phone number. You're like, hey, did you get there? It's like, ah, you can't get a hold of him. Like, was that a similar thing where you, you'd just be hollering and say, well, it's supposed to arrive on Tuesday, but I can't reach, you know, uh, the guy at the moment. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and, and I would tell you, largely uh it was it was very very successful you know for for short trips uh people hauling you know maybe some lumber uh you know uh some some gravel or you know some supplies it was limited what we could put on on the host nation trucks because some of the stuff you know the food and water stuff like that had to stay on on u.s platforms but uh but they took care of a lot of transportation for us but uh, you know, one stands out, and you know, we we all have scar tissue from one ex, you know, experience. But so we we gave uh, we put a vehicle inside a, a twenty foot you know a TEU, and um, put it on the back of this truck, 
and uh, sent the guy out. And it was supposed to go to a place uh, south of Kabul. And it's sealed. The container's sealed. The, the, there's no idea what's in there. And so it goes off. And this is early on, right? So uh, yeah. you just kind of do stuff, right? And so, but so it shouldn't have taken very long, right? So like maybe maybe four or five hours, he should have been there. And, and I'm asking my my transportation sergeant, you know, and he's got the the sat phone glued to his ear. He's trying to he's trying to raise this guy, and and he's not answering his phone. And I think it was uh, it was about one o'clock in the morning, and I was standing in front of this very angry colonel's desk. And I was, I was just a young major at the time, right? And he's, he's like, wait, wait, tell me that you know where this truck is. It's going to be there. And we're not, you know, and he's just kind of going off like like uh, any of us would. Where is this thing? Because it could be a threat, right? If they, if somebody broke open that container and, you know, got access to that vehicle, then, you know, could they go somewhere and be a threat, you know, posing as Americans? It's so a little stressful. But uh, but turns out uh, the guy answered the phone a little while longer and, uh, and said, Hey, uh, yep, uh, I've got it. I'm going to be there in two hours. I just stopped at uh, family with my dinner or uh, dinner with my family in Kabul. You can't make that up. Right? You can't make that up. This guy stopped. Yep. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You know, we're, we're at war, but, uh, so I mean, you know, that's, that's logistics, right? That's supply chain. You just, you've got to be so flexible in, uh, in how you problem solve, uh, and, uh, and how you get things done that, you know, and I tell people that the military gives you a fabulous foundation of logistics training, logistics systems, you know, uh, but when you get out on, on on the operational field, you know, that's just it's a great playbook. And so but you've got to react to what you're seeing, you know, out there and, and then adapt and then utilize the systems best uh, for you. So I think that's and, and that's what our guys are doing out there today. And they're, they're killing it. So um, but I think. Uh, um it, just to finish up on the changes, I think cybersecurity is one that that never really, you know, we we call it operational security back in the day. You keep all your documents, you know, you do all those things. Um, and now everything is is uh, cybersecurity. It's all cyber. And so uh, a lot of investment, uh, you know, going that way and a lot of stuff done. So that's that's one that, you know, was not around at the start of my career at all. And then I think, I think that's um, crazy. Um, like like you were talking about, uh, especially with the changes, you see a lot more with uh, contractors. And we see that on the domestic side as well, where contractors come in and out based on demand. But uh, the, the, that is story we're talking about, hey, this is super important. The shipment is this important. Where is this guy? I swear, I, I think every person in logistics has been there where they, they're in front of their boss and like, where's this guy? What's going on? And then you just pucker up a little bit and you're like, oh, he's going to make it. And it's like you said, the only way you can learn the processes, but learning through experiencing is like, uh, yeah. I think that's universal, especially. In yeah. 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 I, I tell you what, and I'm sure that it, uh, it happens all the time, you know, and, and my dad, uh, it was raised in uh, South Dakota and, and he did, uh, trucking for a few years, you know, after he was done farming and for the land of lakes, uh, operation. And he would tell me stories about, you know, things that happened, he, you know, there was no one there to unload me, you know, or whatever they weren't expecting me and just disconnect. So there's so many things to, to take into account, but, but I think, uh, uh, I think finally on the, on the changes were the, the evolution of, of the vehicles. Right. And so if you look at, um, early on, we had these like Chevrolet blazers and painted green and just different stuff. And then, then the Humvee came into the fleet, um, and then uh, so we're over in in, in let's say uh, was it Iraq in, in the fall of 2004, and uh, 
kind of right at the, at the beginning of the, the, the IED roadside bomb threat that wasn't that wasn't there right away that evolved you know when the, when the operation continued and so it's like hey guys put put sandbags you know under your feet in the humvees you know and it's like sandbags you know and uh but it was it was a new threat right so so we go from having sandbags in in, in the footwells to they welded you know welded steel plating on the doors they welded you know down below to try to protect uh, the people and what do you do right you, you you're, you're adapting to the threat um and at, at, uh, at the same time our industrial base you know was back here figuring out you know bolt-on armor systems and you know for the humvee and different vehicles and so we could protect the gun trucks and we could protect the cargo you know cabs of the cargo trucks as well and so, I mean, just to an example, you know, driving down the road and, and, um, and I know the story has been told many times, the proverbial dog on the side of the road, like a dead dog that, that may not be that it was hollowed out. And then there's a, there's an IED in there. Right. And somebody's got a cell phone that's over in the tree line, you know, ready to, to detonate it. And uh, I mean, that just happened, you know, so many times the threat was real. And so, but, you know, hats off to the industrial base for getting, armor over there rapidly and um and so we really saw from thin skin you know at the initial risk all the way through mraps the uh armored vehicles you know uh that we're, we're driving today and uh, just a fabulous system keeping people safe and uh still getting the jobs done and so so that was something i watched you know real time and um, the industrial base, uh, they killed it getting the stuff over there. So that was great. But I think those are kind of the big, uh, I mean, I, I tell you, I could go on a lot more, but though it changes because 27 years is a long time. We're actually 31, but but yeah, I think that's- You've been, you've been through it all. Like uh, we can, if we need to, we'll have the extended edition. I'm not that old. Super scary. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, no, you're looking great. But I was saying like, what, uh, especially with all these changes, you talked about the Humvees and MRAPs. We're finally using what uh, a transportation management enterprise level systems now. So we're catching up. What kind of stuff, because on the domestic side, the future, we're talking about like autonomous trucks, drone deliveries, uh, automated robot warehouses. Uh, what are some things that the military, uh, from your experience, or if there's anything you think of that would be really cool to watch out for in the coming years. It's something that like, man, this is going to be pretty cool or maybe a game changer. Yeah. You know, and so I think, uh, I think the autonomous stuff is, is, um, is really neat. I mean, we used an autonomous helicopter in Afghanistan for a bit, you know, with some success and, and I, but I tell you the, the problem with, um, and then this is just Randy, you know, talking a problem with, uh, with the autonomous piece is volume, right? If you need to haul a bunch of ammo, you need to haul a bunch of this and that. Um, the, the the systems right now, air wise, aviation wise, just aren't big enough to take you know, the big loads, great distances, you know, navigate the earth and mountains and, and get there. But I tell you, they're coming a long way. There's a lot of companies out there doing a lot of neat stuff with uh, with autonomous systems, and so it's going to be fun to see because we know it's coming. It's just you know, it's, it's just not here yet. And uh, and I know that the army, you know, they they, they put out their their uh, Army Features Command talks about, you know, in their uh, their priorities. And and you can read this on a lot of places, you know, the Army Green Book and AUS, Association of the United States Army. It's always stay connected with a lot of things. And um, but the leader follower technology, you know, is something uh, that they've been testing for a number of years. And I think that is going to be fabulous, you know. So then you minimize 
the number of people out there in the convoy, right? And uh, and so, um, and I've watched you know specials on TV with with navigating urban areas and just crazy drivers on interstates. Well, it's kind of the same, right? Over in, in, in Iraq or whatever, you've got you've got oh, obstacles yeah. there too, and just as crazy drivers. And so we we share some of the same pain uh, with that. But but I think. Um, you know, one of the big things is uh, demand reduction, you know, so so at the same time, we're figuring out how to intelligently move all this stuff. Let's also invest in how do we how do we take less stuff with us? Right. And so um, a number of years ago, we looked at, you know, commonality. And so if you have uh, like the Humvee systems match the trailers and match this and that, so the wheels matched and so you don't have all these different parts to bring, you know, so commonality helped us a little bit. And I think they're looking at, um, you know, demand reduction, you know, through the health monitoring is good, right? So fewer, fewer supplies needed uh, because we're smarter, Um, you know, looking at, uh, you know, making a leap into hybrid electric, you know, uh, full electric, Um, you know, then, you know, can you make your, because I mean, think about the fuel, right? Just the fuel on the battlefield is just, it's, it's very painful. You know, we, in Afghanistan, we had six bags lined up in a berm, 50,000 gallons a piece, right? And, and wow. the trucks would come across from Pakistan with Pakistani drivers, and they didn't have an easy time getting across Afghanistan with, with uh, the resistance, of course. And they show up, and, and I think we could queue up like 85 trucks in this, in this bermed off area, you know, that they stayed in. We downloaded them as fast as we could, but we pumped that fuel, you know, into those bags and slowly watched those bags rise. And uh, and that, that was the fuel, right? So if you flew in um, uh, a C-17 from the States or whatever, you know, and you needed fuel to get out, that was it, right? And for all of our helicopter operations around the area, that was it. And so fuel is a high, it's a high stress uh, business, you know, and and uh, so I think anything we can do to conserve fuel, uh, move to alternative, uh, you know, energies that they can still get the job done. You still need to be able to move a vehicle. You still need to be able to move all that stuff. But I think um, uh, I'm excited about some of the technologies that, that are out there. So it's fun to see. So I think uh, I hope you know, that, people don't sleep cool. on fuel. Uh, that's why I love that part. You talked about the fuel experience. I was reading uh, When Titans Clash by David Glantz, I think. And he talked about how um, I think he was a. Uh, historian at Leavenworth where he did some military and he talked about how uh, during Barbarossa when Germany was going to invade Russia and they were very optimistic except for the fuel people who surprisingly calculated the exact distance they could possibly go before running out of fuel reserves and ironically the two years later when they reached their maximum extent it was surprisingly accurate because if you don't have enough fuel you simply can't continue going and so while everyone else was you know, everyone else focused on their plans. Like, we'll pick up more fuel elsewhere. We'll just get this fuel from other places. These guys are like, uh, no one listed. They're, they're really embarrassed later, obviously. But they're like, hey, guys, we don't have enough fuel for this. And so that was the biggest thing we see in other conflicts, is the fuel. Yeah. So like you said, that blows my mind that you put them in the pouches and you'd have the fuel pouches and you'd literally have to just truck them in manually, right? Yeah. yeah so we would get uh, we would get the. Uh, the Blivets, they call them or whatever. And there, there's like a 10,000 gallon version, you know, and then a 50,000. But we had a, you know, you don't want to have it too big, you know, so you have a single point of failure, you know, so you have berms in between each, 
you know, 50,000 gallon bag or, or then we had, I think we had like three 10,000 gallon bags. And this morphed, you know, just months after I left because you continued to improve, you know, the operation. But when we were there at that time for the fall of 03 through the spring of 04, you know, that's what we had. And, and uh, you know, um, it, it was just amazing, you know, that the trucks that would come, the jingle trucks, jingle fuel trucks. And uh, I tell you what, you know, because we treated the fuel. We had, you know, the, the Defense Logistics Agency, they do fabulous things with fuel. So so we were able to make it, you know, so it was it was clean. It was on spot to go in our aircraft, uh, to fly our airmen and soldiers around. So, but it was, it was high, high adventure, you know, uh, messing with all the truckers and uh, listening to their stories of coming across Afghanistan. And, uh, and it was, it was not an easy day for them. But, uh, but great, uh, great fun. I think, um, you know, between the fuel point uh, and the ammo point, you know, and uh, distribution of, of ammunition and stuff like that is another thing. But, but uh, you know, when you talk about the, the non-contiguous battlefield and, and like fuel points, you know, one of my, one of my friends was, um, like he was in the 10th Mountain Division and they were doing security for the for the Bagram airfield and, and we would get rocket attacks, right? And the same thing could happen in, in Iraq, right? So mortars come in, just just indiscriminately just come in and and because uh, the uh, people, insurgents or whatever uh, opposing force out there would, would you know, kind of rig, you know, uh, a little uh, uh, angle and just fire it towards the base. And if they got lucky, they got lucky, but most of them, you know, were, uh, you know, were harmless, but some, you know, injured soldiers and, and whatever. And so uh, that was always a threat. And uh, I never forget, I was giving him a hard time one night. I'm like, hey, what, we got hit by rockets again last night. I said, what What are you guys doing, you know, out there? <laughs> you know, and, and he goes, he said, man, I'm, I'm going to take you out. But uh, and so the next day they go out in that night's rotation. And, and the next day he brings me this picture of this uh, rocket. I think it was a, a 127 millimeter rocket. It was leaned up on some rocks and it had some wires with an alarm clock and a battery. And so it all it was set to a whatever time and the thing would just spin off and whatever happens, happens. And, you know, we would turn around and, and make a parking lot out of the side of the, the hill, you know, and, and, you know, firing at nothing. And so he says, this is what we're up against. Right. And so it's like, uh, this is, this is early on before all the great monitoring systems you know, got there. But but it's funny, the, uh, the challenges to logistics, it's not just getting it there, right? It's keeping it secure, you know, in route and in storage and whatnot. So, uh, but that was always, uh, uh, always exciting times, put it that way. <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. And I really appreciate you coming on just to talk about not only share some of these stories, but reiterate how important it is. Because I know on the supply side, sometimes trucking companies may haul for uh, the defense department and, you know, domestically help ship things in but i think a lot of times folks don't get that opportunity just to just to see and learn how a lot of the struggles are almost universal just different conditions different yeah, right. challenges but uh, yeah. the same question are we there yet when is it going to get there and i need it pretty soon are kind of very similar i feel like uh, yeah. uh you know from what we've gone through but uh thanks again for coming on we can find you on linkedin is there any other uh preferred social media to look you up at twitter or no, hey, no, that that's uh, great. Hey, thanks, Thomas. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come on and spend some time with you. I hope it was helpful, uh, you know, my ramblings and stories uh, and experience in logistics, but uh, my best to you and your team.
Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Randy. And uh, hope to have you on again sometime if you ever want to talk about, share some more stories with us. Oh, Thanks a lot. 